Now, to start off tonight, I want to ask you guys a question. That's quite dear to my heart. I just want to see if there's anyone who's going through something similar to me. Is there anyone else here who just finds interviews really awkward? Anyone else here? Like, you go to interviews, it's just super awkward. There's that kind of weird thing where you're trying to sell how amazing you are and how they should give you this job and how, you know, get, I'm, I'm awesome, you know, you should employ me. But at the same time, you're really conscious that you don't want to come across as cocky or arrogant. Have you ever felt that kind of weird tension? I always find interviews really awkward. And then they always have those kind of weird, oh, I want to get to know you questions. What's the, the classic one? They always say, how would you describe yourself in two words? You ever had that one? And you're trying to think, okay, well, how, how would I describe myself in two words? Well, I, I don't want to say organized because that makes me sound a bit boring. But then, you know, maybe I should say hardworking. But is that one word or two? Hyphenated? I don't really know. And, and I've got to answer quickly, although I think, you know, I can't think on my feet. And before you know it, you're freaking out. And you just say something stupid like uh, fun and uh, uh, hard uh, and that's, uh, work. And you're just like, nah, I blew it. And you're freaking out. And then they always... They always ask you that kind of creative question, don't they? Like they'll say to you, oh, um, you know, what animal would you say that you are? And you're like, oh, what? Like, I'm, I'm coming for an interview to be a checkout person at Sainsbury's. Like, what difference does it make if I'm a dolphin or alligator? It's just, it's just like, how, how is this relevant to anything? But occasionally they do ask you a question that gets you thinking. And I was at um, an interview to be a student ambassador uh, at the university. I went to the University of Nottingham, which is basically uh, a nice minimum wage job where you walk students around the university, pupils are looking at joining, tell them how amazing it is. And it's pretty dull, but, you know, it's a bit of, bit of money on the side of your studies. And as part of the interview, um, they asked me a question which I'd never been asked before, but really got me thinking. And they said this. They said, if you had a magic wand, and you think, already, oh, here we go. If you had a magic wand, and you could wave it over the university, I don't think they did that, but anyway, you could wave it over the university, and you could change anything about the culture of the university, what would it be? And it really threw me off, because even though I'd been in the university for a couple years, I never once stopped to think or to dream about what would I love to see this university campus look like? What, what would I love to, what, what's my kind of dream to what this university could be like? And it kind of struck me and challenged me that despite, you know, being someone who thinks, you know, I'm, I'm a big picture thinker and I care about this university, I'd never really stopped to think about what, what's my dreams for where I work, where I study. And so I'd ask that question to you. What's your dream? What would you change? What would you, you know, if you had a magic wall, if you could change the culture of where you work, what would you do? And just to kind of get out of the way, when I say where you work, your workplace, as Chris said earlier, this whole series is, is about whatever you do. So for you, that might translate easy. Your work is, you know, your office, or your school, or, um, you know, the station you work at. Or maybe for you, it's your studying, it's your university, or, or you know, the, the college you go to. Or maybe you're a carer, you're caring for kids, or caring for people with disabilities, or for elderly parents. Maybe you're retired, and you're kind of working out what your whatever you do is. Or maybe you're in a season of unemployment, and few of the most contact you have is with people at the job centre. And from experience, I know that's a hard, whatever you do, place to be in. So when I say what your workplace is, you've got to translate that into your context. And so the question again is, what is your dream for your workplace, where you work? What would you do? Have you ever thought about it? Or maybe if I reworded it, you might find it a bit easier to answer. What if I said to you, what do you really dislike about where you work? I think maybe as Brits, for those of us who are British, well, just people generally, we're pretty good at critiquing things, aren't we? 
Like if I told you, tell me what your dreams are, you might struggle. But if I said, tell me the top five things you dislike about your workplace, you'd probably find that one a bit easier. And the fact that people are laughing shows that we all know that's true. But I think all of us would like to change some things about where we work, wouldn't we? Like there's all of us, whether you work in a school or work for a church or wherever it is, all of us, there's certain things we think, yeah, I wish that was different. But I don't think this is so much the question of would we like things to change. It's more the question of can things change? Because tonight we're going to look at shaping the culture, shaping the culture of our workplace. And straight off the bat, some of you might think, if I said to you, you know, can you shape the culture of your workplace? You might say, well, look, John, to be honest, I work for the NHS. Like I'm a small cog in a big machine. How can I change anything? Or I work for a company that's been established for years and years and years. How do you expect me, this young person maybe, you know, it's my first job to come in and shake things, shake things, shake things up. Or I'm a student. I go to a university, thousands of students. And you're trying to say, shape the culture. What am I going to do? How can I make any difference? Or maybe you say, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm at the bottom of the pecking order. I'm at the bottom of the ladder. Maybe you feel like that in your context at the moment. You think, you know, if I had leadership, then yeah, of course I could shape and change things. But I'm at the bottom, I'm on the bottom rung at the moment. Many of us may be in our first jobs or getting out to work on stuff. And we can often feel like, what difference can I make? And the first thing to say is, leadership is important. We're not going to focus on it tonight, but leadership does bring with it greater degrees of influence. And my, I know there's many people in the church, even in this room, who already have positions of significant leadership in your workplace. But my hope is that more and more of us would have positions of influence and leadership in our workplaces. And I, I want to encourage you that that's a, a godly ambition to have, to be someone who says, you know, I want to be in a position where I can have a greater degree of influence, to, to become a manager or to become a CEO, or to start my own company. These are all good ambitions to have because it comes with greater degrees of influence. But the bottom line is whether you're the CEO or the person vacuuming their office, all of us have influence. Because ultimately, influence doesn't come through a policy or a strategy or some paperwork handed down. It comes through face-to-face, one-to-one personal interactions. That's how culture is formed. And each one of us here has those interactions with people, whether it's colleagues or clients or customers. Each of us has those interactions which enable you to shape the culture you're in. Each of us can have an influence. And it's not just that we can have an influence. Actually, as a Christian, we're called to have an influence. It's not just something that you're able to do. Actually, God's saying, no, no, go on, be an influence in your workplace. And you might say, well, I don't see the phrase shape the culture in my Bible. And you're right, you won't see it there. But it does have other language that says the exact same thing. It says, for example, things like shine like stars, bring the light into the darkness. A verse that James was looking at last week. Shine in the darkness. Or actually, the language that gets used the most when it kind of talks about shaping the culture is advancing the kingdom of God. That's the language that gets used time and time again. Jesus talks all the time about the kingdom of God. It's central to our purpose as Christians. What do, we, what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As Christians, central to who we are is bringing the kingdom of God. And that applies in church, yeah. But it implies that in our communities, but also applies in your workplace. Bringing the kingdom of God. 
In Matthew 6, it says, seek first the kingdom of God. Is that something that you're seeking in your workplace? You're seeking to see the kingdom of God in your workplace. Challenging question. But when we look at this whole idea of kingdom, a kingdom advancing, I, don't think, I think sometimes we often forget that when a kingdom advances, what's happening at the same time? Something else is having to be pushed back. If you've ever watched war films or studied history or whatever it is, you'll know that when a, a force is advancing, it's not into a vacuum, it's not into empty space, it's against a rival kingdom. And what is that rival kingdom to the kingdom of God? Who is the, the king? Who's the most important person in the kingdom that's having to retreat if the, the king, Jesus, kingdom of God is advancing? Who's that king? It's you. It's you. See, all of us naturally want to put ourselves first. You don't have to go much further and just look at a little kid and see that we're born with it inside us, aren't we? All of us wants to put ourselves first. You don't have to teach a kid to want the best toy. They don't even want the toy sometimes. They just want it because their siblings got it. We're born that way. And it's not like, you know, we graduate from that. And, you know, as adults now, we're not selfish anymore. When we know our own hearts, we know that naturally in and of ourselves, we want to be king of our lives. It's so true. Maybe you're like, I'm not sure. I'd maybe challenge you. Do you know your own heart? Because by our own nature... We want to be master of our own destiny. And that's why it's so powerful when we become Christians. Because what we're saying is, I'm no longer in control. I'm no longer the king of my life. I don't know if anyone was here a few weeks ago when we had baptisms. Anyone here for that? It was an amazing Sunday. So cool. We had three different people in the evening getting baptized down here. Room was packed. Some powerful stories. And the reason that's such a powerful night is because you've got three people who are saying, I used to be in control of my life, and now I've given over control. See, the imagery of baptism may be kind of in the, the hype or the kind of you know, weirdness of someone being dunked in a pool. You might miss the actual symbolism of what's, being, what's happening. See, as that, those people are being lowered into the pool, that's an image, actually, of them being lowered into the grave, Lowered into the grave saying, I'm dying to me, to my life, my old ways, being in control of my own life. But then when they're raised up, they're saying, I now am living for Jesus. Just as he rose from the grave and gave us new life, I now have a new life in him. Well, I'm no longer the king of my life. Jesus is the king of my life. And if you're a Christian, that's the message through baptism. You're telling the world when you come up out of the water. And the act of declaring that Jesus is king of our lives is what we call worship. That's what worship is. Now, you might think worship is, isn't that just kind of singing songs? Yeah, well, that is part of it. That's declaring this truth of Jesus to be king. But worship is actually giving our whole lives to Jesus. In Romans 12:1, it says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our bodies, our lives as a sacrifice, laying down our right to be king, that's our spiritual worship. And so when we go into work, we go into it not just thinking, you know, this is just a tough day or things are a bit challenging. We go into work recognizing that there's a clash of cultures. 
There's a tension of two different competing kingdoms. And you might say, oh, yeah, my workplace is actually quite good. Great. That's amazing. But for each of us, there's something going on behind the surface, behind the scenes in our workplaces. And the starting point is to realize that there's this clash of kingdoms occurring. So to become an influencer in the workplace, we become worshippers in the workplace. We're pushing back the kingdom of me and advancing the, the kingdom of God, modeling what the kingdom of God looks like in our workplace. That sounds great. You might think, yeah, yeah, I'm well up for that. That sounds cool. But what does that actually look like for you tomorrow at work? See, all this stuff, you might be like, mm, yeah, no, I like that. But when you turn up at work tomorrow, what does it look like for you advancing the kingdom of God at your workplace? So we're going to just look at five different areas that shape culture, the five C's of culture, because everyone loves a good bit of alliteration. We're going to look at the five different areas that culture is shaped where you work and the way in which you can model the kingdom of God. So first of all, the area of care. Now in the kingdom of me first, care isn't really something we're too bothered about. See, in most workplaces, maybe this will be harsh to hear, but it's the truth. Most people are not bothered about your life. Hard to hear, but it's true. Most people are just not bothered about your life. It's why when you can have colleagues for years, but you never hang outside, if you ask them questions about, oh, do you actually know what my spouse is called or what my hobbies are? They'd be like, uh... Or do you know what happened, this big deal in my life last year? Most of them probably wouldn't have a clue because what's the conversation when you go going, I'm like, how's your weekend? Yeah, good. You? Yeah, yeah, good. Does it go much deeper? Not really. Maybe you share a story of something that happened and how do they respond? They say, oh, that's fascinating. Tell me more. I'd love to hear more. Or do I either blank it or then tell you a story about their life? You know those people, every time you tell them a story about you, it always comes back with their story and their kids or their dog or their spouse. And usually they think it's a better story. Like, oh, that's nothing. You should have heard this. <laughs> Why? Because most people don't care about you because they're so obsessed with themselves. Most of us are obsessed with ourselves. That's the natural state of things. You tell them something about your life, they're going to forget it, if they even ask you about it. But in the kingdom of God, when we put God first, we know that we love God by loving others. It means that we genuinely care about what's going on in the lives of our colleagues. Do you care about what's going on in the lives of your colleagues? Do you ever ask them those deeper questions about what's going on? See, in the, in the kingdom of God, we, we ask questions. We actually care about the answers. We follow up. Maybe someone lets on that they're... The wife's having an operation next week, next Wednesday. Yeah, you know what? My wife, she's not doing too well. And you say to them, oh, I'm so sorry. And then you go away and what do you do? You make a note of it in your diary. Bob's wife, operation, Wednesday the 17th. And the day before the operation, you go out to him and say, hey, hey, Bob, I know your wife's going through an operation tomorrow. I just want you to know you're in my thoughts. Or maybe you could say to him, I'll be praying for you guys. And the next day, follow up, hey, how did it go? See, these might seem like really simple things, but genuinely, if you're someone who remembers and cares about what people say, that's revolutionary in many workplaces. It can make a massive difference to someone that you just cared to listen to what they had to say. And who's the person you should try to speak to the most? Who's that person in your workplace? Well, I'd maybe argue it's the person, the person you dislike the most. 
Who's that person for you? Who's that person in your workplace context that you find hardest to get on with? And don't tell me there isn't someone. I know each of you have. I do. I won't, I won't point any fingers. <laughs> Just look this way for a sec. All of us have someone who we naturally great with, or maybe just properly are annoyed by them. That is the person, I want to challenge you, that is the person that you should be looking for most opportunities to care for, to bless, to know what's going on in their lives, to take every opportunity to pray from, even if you know, they respond really badly to you. You're behind the scenes saying, I want to do all I can to bless this person. What a way to show the countercultural kingdom of God. See, that doesn't happen in our workplaces. Most of us, when we're frustrated by someone, what do we do? Either distance ourselves or blank them, or usually we just talk about them behind their backs. If you can bless, encourage, and care for someone you dislike, what a model, what a message of the kingdom of God. Secondly, conflict. Secondly, conflict. Every workplace has conflict. How does yours handle it? How do you handle conflict yourself? See, just to start with, conflict in itself isn't actually a bad thing. I think we sometimes think, you know, disagreements in themselves are bad. They're not. All relationships will have conflict. All healthy relationships will have disagreements. Why? Because no two people are the same. No two people see the same thing the same way. That's why I get a little bit nervous when people say to me, oh, me and so-and-so, we've, we've never disagreed about anything. If two people have never disagreed about anything, it's not because they haven't disagreed. It's because one person is too scared to voice their opinion. So if in your workplace, let's be honest, I doubt anyone's here saying, we never have disagreements in my workplace. If that's you, let me know. I'd be fascinated to study what's going on there. I'm sure you have a very oppressive boss. All of us have conflict in the workplace. The question is, how do we handle it? How do we handle that conflict? And what is one of the most common ways that people handle that conflict? In the me first kingdom... One of the most common ways to handle conflict is gossip. Gossip. It's been interesting to me over the past week. I've been chatting to lots of people just kind of preparing today. What's one of the biggest challenges for you in your workplace? Do you know what? Every single person is included, bar none. They say, there's a lot of gossip in my workplace. Every person has, says that, has said that. Every workplace is struggling with this issue. It's such a massive thing. And I think for many of us, there's all sorts of reasons for gossip, isn't there? Maybe for some it's jealousy. You're just jealous of that person who's got that position you wanted, and so it leads you to say something about them. Or maybe for you, it's, I think, to be honest, for me, the, the root for me when I gossip about people is I have this twisted sense of justice. Do you know what I mean? It's this whole thing of, well, I can't really get them to change. Or I can't get that situation altered. But what I can do is I can kind of talk badly about that person, so even though they might not change, at least a few people will think less of them. And sometimes it's subtle, isn't it? It might not be just straight out saying, oh, they're such an idiot. Sometimes it's uh, just a little line of, ah, oh, standard so-and-so. They're always like that. Oh, you know, did they send the email? Did they send the email? <laughs> of course they didn't. Subtle ways. But for me, I know in my heart, it may be the same for you. It's just a way that, it's a twisted, it's not right, it's a twisted sense of justice. And in every case of gossip, it's always cowardice. Always cowardice. I'm not willing to address the situation. See, in the kingdom of God, we've got two options. Speak up or shut up. Those are our two options. 
there's something I'm not happy about, something that's wrong that's happening in the workplace, I'm going to say something. I'm not just going to badmouth my boss or that colleague or talk about them. I'm going to speak to that person face to face, speak the truth in love and say, you know, I find this difficult. Or maybe go through, if in your context, it might be going through specific channels, speaking to your line manager, going through certain procedures. But I'm going to say something if I disagree with it. Or if I'm not willing to do that, if I'm thinking, ah, you know, it's not that big of a deal, I'm going to shut up. I'm not going to keep speaking about it. I'm not going to keep making little banter jokes about that person or speak about them behind their back. I'm going to do something or let it go. That's how we deal with conflict in the kingdom of God. Thirdly, the third C, commitment. What's the work ethic in the kingdom of God like? See, in the kingdom of me first, I think one of the most common things that we see is laziness. It's laziness. Because for a lot of us, let's be honest, we don't really like our jobs. We're not really a massive fan. We didn't grow up thinking, ah, I can't wait to do this particular thing. And so for many of us, work is just a means to an end to get some money. I've got to pay the bills. I've got to get money coming in. I don't really care about my job at all. And so I'm going to do the bare minimum to get by. I can't really be bothered to put in any extra effort because I don't care about what I'm doing I just want to get paid. Don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to get promoted or anything like that. So I'm just going to get the bare minimum done. And yeah, you know, occasionally I'll work hard, but usually that's when the boss is watching or there's some sort of like bonus coming up maybe. Apart from that, not that bothered. But in the kingdom of God, when we put God first, we remember that we're not working for our line manager. We're not working for our boss. We're working for God. What's that verse that we looked at last week in Colossians 3.23? It talks about working heartily as for God and not for man. That's our mindset. And so we say, I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to treat my clients or customers or colleagues with extra care and attention. I'm going to help their workload when I can. <laughs> I'm, going to do the, I'm going to do the job that no one wants to do, like cleaning the mugs or locking up the office or emptying the bins or actually replying to that group email. That's a real one. Tell me, trust me, that is the, whew, preach. <laughs> in the kingdom of me first of commitment, and I think, to be honest, for many of us in the room, this is actually the bigger one. In the kingdom of me first, we become workaholics. On the other end of the scale, we become workaholics. This is a massive one in London, huge. Why? Because in the kingdom of me first, work becomes the most important thing in life. I've got to work all the hours I can because success is what defines me. My role, my position, getting that promotion, that is, that's what defines who I am. Or maybe for some it's I've got to work all the hours I can to get as much money as possible because I've got to get that big house. I've got to have that car. I've got to have the best of everything. It's a big thing in our city, huge thing in our city. And maybe you're like, oh, I don't know if that's me or not. Well, maybe these would be some good indicators. If you find yourself saying regularly, regularly saying these things, if you're someone who regularly says, oh, I haven't had a day off in, you ever said that one? Or when someone says to you, how's things? And your response is always, oh, busy, yeah, busy, man, busy, busy. What about this one? Someone says to you, I'd love to, love to hang out sometime. And you're like, 
Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a, um, let me just check my diary. Uh, I've got a free Thursday in, uh, in two months. Is that, that, that good for you? You laugh, I had that with someone last week. But in the kingdom of God first, the kingdom of God, work doesn't define your value. Work doesn't define your value. I don't need to work non-stop. My identity isn't found in my position or having a cool job or having a massive house. My identity is found in being a child of God. And at the same time, I'm aware that at the end of the day, the bottom line is, I'm not the one who is responsible for providing all that I need. See, God has promised you that if you trust him, yes, we need to work. But we don't need to work crazy hours to have all that we need. God has promised if you trust him, you'll have all that you need. In fact, rest, or as the Bible sometimes call it, the Sabbath, isn't just some kind of secondary thing that, you know, lazy people care about. Rest is actually central to what God wants for us. See, when, when we talk about rest, this isn't just a kind of, there's a couple verses. If you look at the Ten Commandments, keeping the Sabbath is up there with theft and adultery and murder. So if you're someone who's work, 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 never getting rest, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Why? Because what you're saying is, I don't trust you, God, to provide And when we rest, it's a sign of our faith that God is going to provide for us. Fourthly of culture, character. Character. This one's all about integrity. Here's a bit of a probing question for you. How would you say you're different at work from outside of work? How would you say you're different at work from outside of work? Because I think for many of us, we love to compartmentalize, don't we? I think we come to Sunday and we have this certain personality or persona and, you know, someone says how you're like, yeah, I'm doing great, thanks. And maybe someone tells a bit of a dodgy joke, a bit of an innuendo, and you kind of tusk at them a little bit like, oh, I can't believe you said that. Terrible person. And then it comes to work on Monday and we're completely different. But in the kingdom of me first, there's a mindset of, you know, me at work isn't really who I am. Like, in my context, you kind of have to do certain things, be a certain way, and that's just how things work in my context. So maybe, you know, you go out with your colleagues or clients and just get drunk together. Because that's, that's what we do in my work. That's not who I am, but that's all part of how we get business or how we relate as colleagues. We just get drunk together. That's not who I am. That's just kind of what we do in work. Or, yeah, I know the jokes that we say at lunchtime and things people say, I do laugh and, yeah, I do join in with them. But that's just talk. That's kind of lad talk, isn't it? Like, that's just sort of the, the banter we have with one another. And, yeah, you know, my course, I know on my course at uni, there's, there's certain things I have to do or unethical things. And, you know, I know it's not great. I don't feel too good about it. But that's just kind of my industry. That's just, that's just what we do. It's not who I am. That's kind of separate from, from who I am, what, what I do. Oh, yeah, I, I know I, I cut corners a little bit at work, or when I'm filing the reports, fudge the numbers a little bit, but that's just industry standard. Like, no one's completely honest in my work. When I'm filling out my tax returns, yeah, you know, I kind of 
add in a few bits and take a few bits out, or when I'm filling out that expense form with a mileage, yeah, maybe I'll round it up a little bit, or just claim for a little bit more, because, yeah, you know, everyone does this. Not that big a deal, is it? But in the kingdom of God first, we believe that we're not working for a boss or to please the government. We're working for God, which means I'm the same person on Monday as I am on Sunday. I'm the same person in private as in public. I have integrity. What's integrity? The things you do when nobody is looking. That's who you are. Who are you in that situation when you're filling out your tax return, your expenses? When they ask you, ah, oh, one more drink? When that colleague's been a little bit too flirty or when that really sexual joke is made? Who are you in that context? You say, I'm going to be a person of integrity, even if it's awkward, even if it's difficult. I'm going to live for God. And fifth, sea of culture, celebration. How do you feel when someone gets the opportunity that you thought you deserved? How do you feel in that context? How do you feel when that person at work gets the promotion, gets the opportunity, gets the pay rise, gets the recognition that you thought you deserved? See, in the kingdom of me first, I need the best for me. So if someone else gets what I wanted, that's an issue. Because I, I, I rate myself, I rank myself against my peers. And what does that lead to? Well, that leads me to either thinking I'm better than them or worse than them. So that leads to either pride or insecurity and jealousy. And it's difficult. I'm going to be honest, this has been a big one in my life, whether it's in a work context or outside. When you're desperate for something, when you really want it, and then someone else gets it. And you're thinking, and to be honest, as millennials, as the younger generation, this is a big issue because we have a real sense of entitlement. We think we deserve to have the best roles, the best jobs, and have everything. And so when something doesn't go our way, sorry, what? That's not supposed to happen. We have all these dreams, you know, we're told, dream big, you know, you can achieve anything you want. And then it doesn't happen. You know, that one's supposed to happen. Again, it's not just work. Maybe for you, it's, you know, like I just turned 30. I was supposed to be married by now. I was supposed to have kids, supposed to be, you know, leading some big church. And, you know, all these things happen. I see friends doing it. And then I can say, you know what? I should have that. I'm more gifted than they are. I've got more to offer than them. Because in the kingdom of me first, we want what's best for me. But in the kingdom of God, it's not about me. It's not about you. See, my success is not defined by my bank account, my income, my, how much I've been promoted up the ladder, what car I drive, how cool my job sounds. My success is defined by serving God. I'm not here to be served, but to serve. I just love that picture of Jesus. The person who deserved you know, all recognition and all praise he says, I'm going to show you how to live. I'm going to show you how to lead. What did he do? Got down on his knees and washed people's feet. I mean, crazy. The Lord of all the universe washing people's feet. And what a, a sign for us. What an example to us. And, it, and God says to you, you know, I have a unique plan for you. 
And you can be confident in your gifting. God has a unique plan and purpose for your life. So when someone else is successful, you can celebrate with them. You can say, you know, I'm going to run my own race. I'm going to stay in my own lane. I'm going to celebrate with you because I know God has a unique plan for me and I can rejoice in whatever he brings for you. That's what the kingdom of God looks like in the workplace. And here's a real challenge as well. When there's an opportunity, you've been blamed for something, you're going to deflect it onto someone else. Say, I've got an opportunity to get a one-up on them. I want to take responsibility and give praise. Lift others up. Not tear them down. So caring for others, handling conflict well, having a good work commitment, a good work ethic, modeling character and celebrating others. All these things can make a massive difference in your workplace. Whether you're the the bottom of the pile or you're the CEO, you can make a difference in your workplace. And the reason I know that is because I'm not confident that you guys in yourself have the strength to do that. I'm confident that you're going with a God who has all power and authority to handle your workplace, to change your workplace. See, when we talk about a sovereign God, we often think about, you know, God has my life in his hand, or he has Sid Cup in his hand. No, the sovereign God has your workplace in his hands. And so when you go in, you can be confident that when you try to do these things, you're not alone, that he's with you. The great influencer.